Yo, what's up, dear viewers, dear listeners? I'm joined with one of my favorite people, Jess Hill. Jess is based in Australia. Jess is an author. She is a journalist and she is a campaigner, specifically around stopping domestic violence and gendered violence. Uh, I met Jess maybe last year, the year before. I was very surprised. I just finished reading her excellent book, Looking at Coercive Control, See What You Made Me Do. I was like, wow, this is an amazing book. And then your people reached out to me and were like, can we interview for your podcast series, The Trap? And I was very humbled and excited. And I got all like fanboy about who you are and what you do. So thank you for coming on my little show, Jess. I really appreciate having you here. It's my pleasure. How are you today? How's, um, how's the situation over there? You guys um, opening back up? Yeah, no, I'm good. Um, I've actually just finished a, a big project looking at Me Too, which I've also quoted you in, um, and uh, and that like just chewed up my life for um, two months, which is not enough time to write forty thousand words. Um, just as a as a warning to anyone out there thinking that's a good idea, um, and, uh, and so I just feel like I'm coming back to life because I came off doing the trap, which was, you know, eight parts now, now 10 parts um, series and which was a two year project really. And then went straight away, like the next day into writing this gigantic um, essay on me too. And yeah, I just, oh, I kind of forgot who I was as a person <laughs> through that process and just am like defragging now. And yeah, Sydney's opened up. Uh, people feel a lot more relaxed. You can just sense that People have got back in touch with their friends, their family, and they're just, they're not as anxious. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because there is a terrible pervasiveness of anxiety. I mean, it's understandable, but I would argue social media exacerbates it exponentially. So mm, I'm glad yeah. to hear that people are starting to wind down, come off like DEFCON 5 or whatever, do you know what I mean? Well, it's this whole experiment. It's like, hmm, is it possible to host all of your social interactions on social media? Answer, that's a very bad idea. <laughs> so I think we realised. Yeah, I really think about this in terms of mental health, particularly for our, our, our young people, you know. There's so many of them are already overly digitalized in their interactions with people. And now this is where they've been doing their schooling. Mm -hmm. um, they don't get that face-to-face -face contact that is essential for healthy human development, healthy human connection. So yeah, you get Zooming fatigued, right? Like, awful. It's a tired time. Um, regardless, Jess, why are you so passionate about domestic violence and preventing it and also understanding it? Mm. where yeah, did it come from yeah that's key I think what you just said about understanding it so I think talking to people like you Richie I don't often talk about you know in public what it is that personally drives me aside from you know a mission um to achieve social justice and those that I've that I've had since I was a kid um you know I think anyone who comes to this area uh, and dedicates their life to it for years, um, as I have, has a reason to do that. Um, and without speaking like specifically, there were experiences I had in my childhood that reflecting as a, you know, late 20 something year old and into my thirties, I realized that there was a dynamic at play that I couldn't name, that I had organized myself and changed my behavior to suit 
um, but that was slowly chipping away at me. Um, and I didn't know until I'd written the book um, that some elements of that sort of coercive control was some of what I had experienced in various ways growing up, um, but could never put my finger on. And I know that through therapy and various other things, I have come to understand a lot of those what were kind of unspeakable experiences and dynamics and that that changed my life. And what I figured out at the end of writing the book and well into doing the publicity for it was the reason I was so obsessed with getting inside the experience of coercive control is that this is a dynamic that makes itself invisible. Um, and when I say it makes itself invisible, I mean, the, sorry about that. That's, um, you can totally fine. get rid of that. Um, it may, I mean, the perpetrator makes it invisible, you know, and, and they do that through various ways. They do it by making the person they're subjecting, um, the, you know, the, the person who they're um, coercively controlling, they make them feel like they're to blame or they enlist them to fix them, um, which is playing to those persons, that person's strength. Um, or they gaslight them to the point where they just don't even know what is up anymore. Um, and I could see in the people that I was speaking to that not having the language to explain that, not only to friends and family and the system, but also just to themselves, was a huge um, prohibitor to them being able to heal um, and being able to get back to love and get back to connection. Um, and so I guess that's sort of been my mission is that, I mean, obviously I want to see domestic and family violence and abuse drastically reduced. That's, the, that's what we need to aim for. In the meantime, as we try to, you know, bring about different strategies that will achieve that. Fucking hell, sorry. I don't know why all this is open. Um, <laughs> um, in the meantime, it's really important to give people the language that they need to represent themselves. And I guess that's, as a writer, that's been my mission to get, get inside that experience so totally that people feel it on a visceral level. And instead of them coming away from the writing with all these questions as to like, why does she stay? Why does he do it? Like all of these lingering questions that the scene is depicted for them so clearly from both sides, from perpetrator side, from the victim survivor side, and even from the side of the systems who come to respond um, that they aren't left with those questions anymore, that it, it all makes sense. Because I think for a lot of people, this does not make sense. It doesn't make sense why victim survivors will go back to a really dangerous relationship like seven times on average before they leave for good. And it doesn't make sense that the people that you know, who you think you know really well, who might be your brother, who might be your best friend, could operate in such a Jekyll and Hyde way in their relationship um, that you that person would be utterly unrecognizable to you. Um, that's and that's the that's the what is utterly confounding about this phenomenon. I guess what's kept me on the hook for all this time is that on that human interpersonal level, it is both frightening and, and horrific, but also fascinating. 
Yeah, right. There's really intellectual curiosity behind your emotional drivers to make a more equitable world, huh? Mm. Yeah, I really, um, I really resonate with that myself. You know, like it is morbidly fascinating uh, to try and understand the dynamics at play. And then also, how do you meaningfully address them? Mm. Which is kind of what I really like about your work is that you're not just naming the problem. You're also giving language to it, helping people identify it. But you're also very compassionately looking at why offenders offend in the first place. Mm. And I think that's part of the problem at the moment is that we're pretty good at awareness raising. Mm. We're pretty good at identifying, you know, perpetrators, you know, think of the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, the Bill Cosby's. But we're, we're still not mainstreaming concepts around how do you help someone change? A mm. good brother of mine here, one of the pioneers mm. of family violence prevention in Aotearoa is a guy called Vic Tamati who um, he, he was very violent to his partners and his children growing up. And he's been very open about his journey to nonviolence and now helps men become nonviolent. And his whole message is, hey, look, no perpetrators, no victims, you know, no survivors. And I think that's kind of where I'm curious to explore. How do we at once understand that a lot of men are playing out family histories within a culture which still is uh, asymmetrical in its gendered power dynamics and that men are still in privileged positions of authority and physically dominant and you know there's a whole range of social constructs which encourage men to uh, make women subservient and objectify them and and at the same time encourage them to self-reflect, hold each other accountable, mm. and do the work. Mm. So um, it's it's very difficult. Um, partly, so uh, something I, I often come back to, you know, to preface any conversation about this is that I had, um, I, I heard this amazing line from a, a cop in the States and not just any cop, you know, like this guy is um, inside the police force in the, in the United States trying to weed out police perpetrators of domestic violence. That's his, that's, that's his kind of entire life mission. Um, and, and he said, you know, I've never met a bank robber who could convince me to arrest the clerk. <laughs> and what he's talking about is you know the extreme manipulative abilities of men who use violence and abuse in their families um so this is a major barrier to us reaching and helping these guys it's also a major barrier to us knowing who we're dealing with so for example um and two great people, um, again, from your home country, um, Matt and Sarah Brown, who work with She's Not Your Rehab. Um, and, you know, they talk about the fact that actually when they're working with men with trauma histories, that's actually, they're, they're kind of the only guys they work with. Um, and there's, there's so many ways in with guys who've been traumatized because they know what it's like to have been a victim. Like they know what it's like to have been subjected to that. And Matt and Sarah Brown talk about the fact that, like, if you were just to, if we just focus on the men who've been traumatised and we really work with them to, to 
you know, speak to that little boy inside them and heal that little boy so that he can sort of rejoin the man. Um, then we're going to change culture. Um, what's much harder is to speak to and influence the men for whom actual, when I say actual trauma, what I mean is like an actual, like an actual trauma history of being traumatised by an individual or a group um, has not been part of their life. Um, so I think, I think everyone, I think we live in a trauma culture um, and it's what we call patriarchy. I think that it is a culture that has trauma at its core, but not everybody experiences trauma on that interpersonal level as kids. You know, it's more of a um, cultural trauma that patriarchy inflicts on people um, and particularly boys. But if you have not sort of had that interpersonal trauma and victimization, um, and you've just come to us to identify very strongly with those core tenets of patriarchal masculinity about, you know, control, subjugation, and most importantly, contempt for women, um, it's very hard to speak to you. You know, um, it's very hard to find a way in because if you've sort of like really, if you've really located yourself inside that identity, the kind of dehabituation process, it's sort of like being de-radicalized <laughs> to my mind, you know, like there is a real process that you're going to have to go and you're going to have to show that person, um, that, that guy, that there is something in it for him to not be like that because he's not going to come for, there's very, it's very hard to access his empathy for people he holds in contempt. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, it's a very, very good point you make because we, because so many of us acculturated as males to see women as less than the whole process of objectification and dehumanization. And it can start at a really young age. You think about mm. jokes and social media and pornography, music that we listen to. I'd know. say even younger, like I'd you know, and not just me, but, you know, people like the family therapist, Terence Real, whose work I, I cite a lot, he talks about the normal traumatization that happens around three or four, where boys learn, not even just through their parents, um, not even through being bullied necessarily, but they learn through various shaming experiences yeah, yeah, yeah. that it's not, um, as he says, it's not politic to express your emotions, that if you're savvy and if you're going to get along and, you know, be cool or be accepted, um, get friends and obviously later, you know, be loved and attractive, um, that you need to present a strong and invulnerable front, right? So what Terence Real has noticed in his study on this is that like, you know, boys around three, four, five, they, they start being much less emotionally expressive. And that's not because they are less emotional, right? It's just because they've learned that it's not proper to be expressive. Um, and that doesn't have to happen through any overt trauma. It's just a message they get. And even people who are raising their kids with the full awareness of trying to come up and interfere in that, certainly that is a better situation than people who do not have any consciousness. But a lot of like parents of young boys see this happening to their boys and they feel powerless to stop it. I'm one of those parents. 
I have a stepson. Right. I have a stepson. And I remember when he came home, um, maybe he was four. And he's like, I fell over, but I didn't cry. Like he really wanted me to know that. Mm. And now he'll say, I didn't cry. I'm like, it's fine to cry. You know, like I'm probably over the top with that. And he's like, I know, I know. You know, like he's, he's re almost resistant of, I guess, my emotional expressiveness or the permission I'm giving him to be emotional. Mm. And I, I'm curious about where that acculturation comes from. You know, like I think about what's he, what's it, what's his experiences at school? What are the kids at school saying? Like, what are his teachers saying? What are the other adults in his life saying that when I'm not, do you know what I mean? When me and his mm. mom aren't around. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not even that they're saying anything, you know, sometimes it's just a look that you mm. get um, or you, you take a chance and maybe are a bit emotional in the classroom or you show a softer side and people laugh or you know what I mean like I it's, mean. it's an expectation like and and it's enforced by boys but it's also enforced by girls um both boys and girls have attachment to patriarchy um because it's what we're raised to expect as normal um and it takes a lot of undoing and the undoing this is what's sort of it's it's an inevitable project for everyone who wants to be as free from this type of like constriction, cultural constriction as possible and moving towards this, this you know, equal world, <laughs> uh, but one that centres love instead of just individualism and, you know, the collective rather than just, you know, what's in it for me, is that you will have to undergo a process of undoing. There are going to be people listening to this like, we don't live in a patriarchy. There mm. isn't a system of male dominance and control anymore. Women are free to do whatever they want, whenever they want. What do you say to that? So I would say that patriarchy is, yes, you can define it simply as a system of male domination and power over. And I would say, well, just look at the composition of parliament, of the, um, of the top 200 companies in Australia, look at the, you know, um, upper management of your local businesses. Like, of course, we live in a male-dominated society. Um, we just, it's so normal that you just don't notice it as male domination. It's just what is. Um, and, yes, women are increasingly in positions of leadership and that is changing things remarkably. And, you know, I think we saw that in Australia the first female chief justice of the high court um, launched after she received complaints about a former high court justice about sexual harassment, actually launched an internal inquiry um, into this high court justice. And when that inquiry found that the allegations were, um, had a basis to them, um, released a very short statement that was like, we believe the people who have made these allegations and we have apologised to them and we are ashamed that it has happened in this court. Um, that may or may not have happened if there was a male high court judge, uh, chief justice. Um, so what I'm saying is, it's like, yes, women are in leadership positions. In, in many cases, that is changing the dynamic. Some other times women in leadership positions are just like falling into the same patriarchal dynamic because that's how they get ahead and that's what they've been acculturated into as well as, as a how to express power. Um, and I know personally I've been, I've certainly found myself doing that during my life, you know, sort of presenting more masculine um, because that's, a, that's an expression of power and sometimes even 
having contempt for the feminine inside me. Um, I have to struggle with that raising my little girl. Like sometimes I see her come home with like a baby doll that she wants to nurse and I feel like, ew, you know. (laughs) But I'm like, don't have contempt for the girl side of her or what we would classify as the girl side. Include all of it. Like she also likes sharks and dinosaurs and, you know, like as so long as she's got an open mind is all I'm asking for, I guess. So anyway, so I guess the point being is that like, yes, we live in a male-dominant patriarchy it's just not even an argument anymore that's just an isness and I think me too has reinstated that term as something we can talk about without just sniggering about it um but really what I think is the the nature of patriarchy is a it is a system in which power over is seen as the ultimate to achieve it is a system that atomizes people um into yeah, individualism and, you know, loneliness. Um, It values aggression um, and high status uh, that revolves around that ability to just, you know, squash people underneath you. Um, And it's the contempt for women is at the centre of it and the contempt for not just women but the feminine. Um, And the feminine can be everything from uh emotionality compassion to environmentalism you know these are all seen as feminine activities um so so this is and in in order to the the culture it's like this feedback loop in order to acculturate people into this way of life in which you know lonely and aggressive boys are often afforded a type of status throughout their life to the point where they're the ones we put in power. Like if you think back to like Indigenous societies and the elders that had power were not like just the most aggressive, <laughs> you know, the and, and the most pushy and the most manipulative, you know. They actually had cultural authority and knowledge. Now, like if you look at the, you, you've got a slightly different situation in New Zealand, which I must say is anomalous around the world. Our Prime Minister you know, lies easily, is aggressive, is known as a bully, like he has ascended to the prime ministership because of those qualities, not in spite of them. That's mm. what we value. Whether we say we value it or not, We the value that we place in real life, who we make CEO, who we make prime minister, are those people. Yeah, that's really interesting because everything you're describing there is quite analogous with our individual constructs of masculinity if we're thinking about like hegemonic masculinity Mm. but also neoliberal capitalism totally and i know there are people out there who are like turn off right now (laughs) (laughs) down the rabbit hole because i don't know if you follow there'll be people online who follow me who are listening to this like i think richie's being red-pilled right because i have become quite exhausted with what they call work culture but mm-hmm. academically we would call critical social justice with a postmodernist philosophical base like i find it <laughs> you can see why they've you know short yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but i do find it ridiculous a lot of it i find a lot of the hot takes that come out of elite media elite academia i find them i find them wrong academically but I also find them wrong in their approach to dealing with these issues but when you explain it you explain it with a real compassion you explain it with a real 
I guess, empathy and mm. like a lack of haughtiness. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's, that's a lot of your, your frustration with some of this sort of ideological frameworks yes. is that when you, if you are to try to present to the boys and men you're speaking to through that ideological framework, you see in real time how that doesn't work. Like I've, had, I've, how productivity is. I've, I mean, we've talked before and I've told you that boys have queued up when I was earlier to the work and I would use terminology like toxic masculinity, you'd have a queue of like kind of grumpy boys mm. at the end of your presentation who are like, no, blah, blah, blah. And I want to, these are like 14, 15, 16 years old. And you can see where they're getting their ideas from, like the manosphere and you know, like, you know, like this neo-masculinist ideology again they don't necessarily frame it in that language but you can see it coming through out of the young mouths you hear it coming out of the young mouths and and it kind of really has shaped that uh that speaking like that doesn't work you actually have to like yo what's up <laughs> fucking guys you know i don't know, like you know, <laughs> fucking, like what the fuck did you see the ufc on the weekend anyway who thinks like violence against women's bullshit and then fucking every guy in the room will say yes that's fucking bullshit right and and it's like i'm really interested to know like how do we get more fucking regular bros who look like me like jocks like i'm a total jock outside of this like (laughs) like, who like lifting weights who like drinking beers who might want to go hunting to also understand that what we're talking about this culture of domination and hyper individualism and um, violence is 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 all of our problem, and they can actually be some of the most powerful proponents for changing it. How mm. do we do that? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, I think part of it is uh, showing them positive pathways out of it, which is what you do, um, which is to say that. Like I had a really interesting chat with my brother um, who is a classic, you know, um, on the line, like, you know, he went to Sydney Uni um, and a lot of the the culture there politically annoyed him. Um, He's very, he's like, he's a really straight shooter. Like he does not hold back on what he thinks. Um, But he's also really sensitive to why, people are enforcing stuff around anti-racism and anti-sexism in ways that is maybe sometimes over the top. Like he gets it. Like he's not just sort of going, oh, this is all so tiring and I don't want to hear about it. Um, But I remember when we were like, it was early on in um, the Me Too movement, so 2017, 2018, and there was a lot of talk about consent and, um, and there was a lot of talk about like, well, okay, so men tend to have a different idea of consent to some women and that that you know coercion is still consent is is a consensual process you're coercing someone they they're gradually you know relenting <laughs> so they're gradually consenting um and what we found during um me too and particularly through the Aziz Ansari case where for anyone who doesn't remember that was the comedian who for whom you know, there was a very detailed graphic account of a night he spent with a um, a younger woman, 23-year-old woman, where 
the coercion was gross. Like it was, <laughs> you know, he kept on moving her hand to his penis, even though she kept moving it away. He kept trying to get her to fuck him, even when she said she didn't want to. Um, but, you know, they did have a sexual interaction that was partly consensual and the rest of it was kind of gross and, and coercive. And the chats afterwards were everything from this should never have been published. It's not a me too story. He should not be shamed by like this. It's not assault. Um but there are also other people who were like, wow, this woman said this is the worst sexual experience of her life and that in hindsight she did feel like she'd been assaulted, whether it did or did not broach that criminally is, you know, is sort of not um, important. Um, but on that night, Aziz Ansari did not see any problem with it and he was surprised that she felt that way afterwards. Yeah, I remember that a lot because a lot of really prominent um, even feminist or female commentators came out and said, this is not a thing. This mostly is, women. Mostly, most, women. mostly women came out and said, this is someone looking for attention. And it blew exactly. the blog up. And I, I really struggled with that one because of that, you know, I, I, and it does make me think that we need to do a much better job of teaching all people what consent is. It's not because, you know, you read the article he, uh, from memory when she'd say stop or use a ver- like a strong mm. verbal cue, he'd go, oh, okay, cool. But then he'd try and make out with her some more, right? Yes, exactly. Like, you know, they, there were verbal interactions that were pretty clear from the, from the account. Um, and so, I mean, w- what I think was interesting was that, yeah, there were a number of like high-profile female feminist, uh, feminists who, who came out and, and decried the article. And I think the article was, it's line ball, but it was in pretty bad taste and I would have done it very differently. But um, but they were sort of like, this is, this is mission creep. Like we're talking about rape and sexual assault and now you're talking about coercion. And look, if we get all this muddy, we're going to lose the audience. It'll derail the movement. So I think there was this sense of panic that this is now getting into some real gray area that's open, very much open to debate. For me, looking back on that years later, that's what was actually why that story hit such a nerve is because it is so banal. It is an experience that virtually everyone seemed to be able to relate to. And for some guys, it was a huge wake-up call where they were like, holy shit, I have definitely done that in my life. And now I'm just looking back on that and thinking about how that woman was and maybe what she thought of me afterwards. And not only is that shitty, what I what I did, um, but what might I have done if I'd just been a bit more pushy? Like, could I have actually literally assaulted that person without even knowing that's the territory I was entering? And when I was talking to my brother about it, there's, we've just had actually today, we've just had affirmative consent laws passed in New South Wales. Oh, which that wow. Basically, you have to see, you have to have had affirmative consent before you have sex with someone. Um, For those who don't know what affirmative consent is, would you like to? You have to have a yes. Yeah, you have to have a yes. It's, it not, the, it's not the absence of no. I it's think not the absence of no. I think a lot like, of people mix that up. Do you want to have sex with me? Yes. I know it's a funny one because, you know, I've been in a long-term relationship for many years now, but um, I dated a lot <laughs> and I do this work and a lot of the women that I used to date, um, I will kind of do this 
uh, retrospective, like, was this okay in our relationship? You know, I used to look at a lot of porn in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wasn't into, like, hanging people from the rafters, like Mike Hutchinson or anything. But I, I wanted to speak to that and, and acknowledge, hey, if I ever was pushy. Mm-hmm. I, and it's been this this journey for me because in my early 20s, I had a couple of, you know, girlfriends I'm still friends with or girls I used to date say, oh, I never felt pushed into it. But culturally, I felt that that's what I had to do to make my boyfriends like me or yeah. want to be my boyfriend. Yeah. And I think we're both unaware at that stage. Like I wasn't aware that I'm recreating pornographic scripts at the time. Mm-hmm. I couldn't name that. And I know that's really awkward for some people to listen to, but it's what our young people do. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and it wasn't the physicality of it, but I think it was their lack of emotionality in mm. my sex life. And relationality. Right? Relationality. Right. It was this functionality. This very yeah. performative script. And, and it's been interesting to unpack that to when I was in my, in my thirties dating a lot, <laughs> I've had a couple of girlfriends, but no, you are overly consensual. Right. Like, like, <laughs> Shut up and just do it already. Yeah. 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 And it's been, <laughs> it's been an interesting, the point I'm making is like finding that balance. Right. It's like, I how, think, yeah. and, and, and it is hard to do that. Like it's, and it is a practice. Um, and I think, you know, just to, to wind up the very long story of my brother, um, basically <laughs> he said that like, actually those ideals around affirmative consent, made clear to him a situation that had been difficult to sort of get clear on how to be how to be how to do it right like how to do it in a way that makes the person that you're with feel cared for um and so he was like actually now i i seek consent in a conversational like just intimate way as i have sex with someone like how's this for you how's it it's actually the way to learn about each other sexually and to have a better intimate experience yeah that actually makes for way better sex totally and, and i think that's putting yourself on <laughs> yeah 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 just like doing guesswork it's like yo this does not my this is not what i like yeah you know? Whereas... and it goes both ways like girls as well you know like we're like you know there's so so often we feel like we're just flying blind um, in sex. And that can be even with when you've been together with someone for ages um, that like, if you just like, Hey, do you like this? Like I've done this to you for 10 years, but I don't never even no. asked. No, I <laughs> I hate like, it. I've never I liked it. 10 years too late. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> no, but, and that's it. And it's like, how do you make this conversation that you and I are having now not to boot? Cause I spend so much of my time talking to experts in the space or activacy types or, you know, that it's not weird, but I forget that for a lot of people talking about um, asking someone if they, how they like to give or receive blowjobs is like a weird conversation, right? Mm-hmm. But, but we really need, it's very strange. We live in this hypersexual mm. culture where we're aggressive, violent, I would argue sexist, uh, patriarchal pornography is like the de facto sex education for most people and music video culture and the lyricism and our mainstream music on throughout you know Spotify and stuff is hypersexual and yet mm. we can't talk about lube or vibrators or affirmative consent in a way that's relational do you know like yeah. relatable sorry not relational yeah relatable yeah totally and that's uh, I guess that is 
that squeamishness that we've had around sex um, has, yeah, created a massive vacuum for industrialist porn to to come into um, because, you know, there's, I mean, there's there's a reason why porn is has the reach that it does. And it's because, like, yeah, we eroticise sadomasochism it's a you know this is a part of our erotic makeup like we're not just all all neat little consensual (laughs) beings like you know it's what i think esther perel says something along the lines of she's a couples therapist i know i've read a book yeah right so she says you know what we want um on the streets it's not necessarily what we want between the sheets Um, (laughs) and uh, so (laughs) um but but there's so we need to like drop the squeamishness around it so that we can actually start to learn how to have these conversations. Um, and and I think part of what's, I don't know what's been happening in New Zealand or whether this has reached New Zealand, but here we have had a, a huge conversation this year about rape culture in private schools particularly, but all schools really, um, but it kind of reaches this superpower elite entitlement in private schools and and it's the woman who started at Chanel Contos an ex-private school student from Sydney you know she just put a post out on Instagram saying if you have been sexually assaulted um and it was looking at private single sex boys schools um then you know post here she got thousands and thousands of testimonies and what she realized is like not only had she been sexually assaulted and not even realized it at the time because it was so normal um but pretty much all of her friends had been and that pretty much every weekend at parties they were being like forced to give head to boys that they knew boys that were close friends boys they didn't know um that where boys were just like inserting themselves into girls who were unconscious like in public view crazy shit that you just like fuck I don't remember that from my high school days but anyway um and so and when she was talking about the fact that like the Australians were shocked she's like yeah Australians have just woken up to the fact that we live in rape culture um and we but so while we may live in a rape culture where this stuff has become normalized for young people who we're supposed to be progressing out of this, like we're supposed to be progressing towards healthier sexuality, you know, where non-binary gender is like fully acceptable, all this stuff. And yet what we're doing is with a with like this industrialist porn machine creating young people for whom sexual assault is normalized. Like this was not supposed to be how it worked. Um, but if we're if that's normal then it is also an opportunity to be like, well, then talking about sex has got to be normal too because you're all like you are all soaked in it every day and every weekend. So maybe that's an opportunity for us now to drop the squeamishness. I appreciate you calling calling porn for what it is because if I'm honest with you, some of my biggest critics in my public work have been, I guess, um, of the third way feminist perspective on sex work which is cool like but I find it really hard to not say that porn is a contributing factor to sexism and patriarchy and men's violence towards women and yet I've been pretty robustly critiqued for critiquing porn and I'm not sure how to how to deal with that like as a man in the space you know like you're told that you're policing you know, woman's sexual agency or 
sex workers work. And I understand that I have friends who work in sex work, but at the same time, how can I tell boys, women are not products to be consumed and used and abused. They're not mm -hmm. there for your sexual gratification. And yet there's this whole multi-billion dollar industry teaching exactly the opposite. And neither are boys and men just penises on a body that yes. are perpetually erect. Exactly. Like it's, you know, it has that same, you know, I've, I've been contacted by private school boys who say they've been sexually assaulted by girls who just could not imagine that they were not up for it because boys are always up for it. You know, that's the thing that comes across in porn. There's never a boy that's not up for it. Like, occasionally you see girls who are not up for it. I mean, of course they're coerced, you know, to overcome their resistance, <laughs> but you never see a guy who's not up for it. Um, that's porn, you know. I think the thing with me um, and, and my partner has been really active in this space as well um, is that, and he's a psychotherapist. Um, so he deals with guys whose sexual appetites have been formed by, you know, the consumption of porn largely. And it's just to have middle ground. It's like, is all porn bad? No. Is like feminist indie porn bad? No. It's like a lot of it's great. A lot of it's really erotic and a real turn on. Is like, you know, is the middle gonzo hyper industrialized porn that is mostly the type that's consumed by young people bad? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, when you are, you know, depicting girls being choked and gagged and, and all the other dehumanizing demeaning elements of porn where you know consent is just implicit um even if it's resisted that's that is demonstrably having a negative effect on young people um but it's like it's as stupid as saying that because you think mcdonald's and kfc is bad for you you hate food like <laughs> Yes, Thanks. there is gourmet <laughs> food and it's wonderful. I need food. I'm a human being. I, I need food to survive. And and to an extent, it's the same way with sex. It's like, yeah, we need sex in, in a way. I don't want to sound like an incel here, but like we need, we need sex in a way to survive. Like it's we're sexual creatures. Like um, there is nothing wrong with kink, with fetish, with depicting that on screen, with playing with boundaries, all of that stuff. Like fucking great. Go for your life. Um, but I don't want to live on McDonald's and I don't want my, you know, my four-year-old to grow up to have sex with someone who's only eaten McDonald's their whole life. It's really interesting you say that because, you know, in my personal life, I've definitely had sexual experiences with people when I was older and you doing this work, it gave, it gave me like an explicit lens about the narratives that they were expressing, you know, after I'd done a whole bunch of work on myself to like decolonize my own internal porn narrative mm. to then go out and date people who were using those porn narratives and then be like, Oh, do you, is that really your thing? Or is that because your last few boyfriends, uh, had, you know, had internalized those concepts and ideas and that's what you expect of men mm. it's it's a really interesting one and i really appreciate how you how you talk about it hey um november 25th today is november the 23rd the day i'm talking to you november 25th is white ribbon day um for those who are unfamiliar white ribbon day is international day of stopping men's violence against women 
uh, I believe it was founded. In fact, I know for a fact it was founded by a group of pro-feminist men in Canada mm. after the 1989 Montreal massacre, where a man named Mark Le Pen stormed into a Unitech Polytechnic and shot dead, I think, 13 or so women, separating, specifically separating the men from the woman and murdering the woman in a self-declared war on feminism. And pro-feminist men in Canada came together to acknowledge that violence women is a, is a men's problem hmm. is that something that you um because i know white ribbon has had its criticisms in australia you know hmm. every every white ribbon organization is different throughout the world yeah you know, it's 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 um doesn't have a i mean while it has a, a central brand every organization is run differently yes. some have uh some are charities some have more of a for-profit model What's the situation with White Ribbon in, in Australia at the moment? Yeah, well, so White Ribbon basically liquidated um, and and after, yeah, a number of like rolling scandals and, of course, the uh, tradition that they had sort of started of like having the White Ribbon pin um, and having White Ribbon ambassadors, unfortunately um, and predictably drew a number of men who were also perpetrators, <laughs> uh, very enthusiastic ambassadors and also perpetrating horrific violence and abuse themselves. Um, so, so yeah, that liquidated and it was the, the I guess, well, you say the brand or the business was bought out by um, a group in Western Australia called Communicare. They, they run, amongst other things, um, residential men's behaviour change programs. Uh, I think it's one of the only ones in the Southern Hemisphere where former perpetrators, I think mostly coming out of jail, actually go in and have a residency for several months um, at this place. Um, so they live and breathe um, their behavioural change. Um, and the guy running White Ribbon now, Brad Chilcott, is a friend of mine, and I'm actually on the National Advisory Council for White Ribbon. and. I've seen how Brad, coming from a background where he was actually a, a pastor, but like a quite radical Christian pastor, um, and he um, and a very pro-feminist man, but also ran Welcome to Australia, which was for refugees coming to Australia. It was all about like, helping them integrate into into Australian community, supporting them. Um, so he came across to White Ribbon with the impossible task of rehabilitating it. Um, where it was seriously on the nose for, for most people in the domestic and family violence sector. And he really went door to door just on a listening tour, just to be like, where did White Ribbon go wrong? How do you think men should engage in this movement? What's right? What's wrong? Um, and slowly, as a result of all these conversations, started to develop this sort of new vision for White Ribbon, which is not about like pins or, or ambassadors, but it really is about community-driven action and where men don't lead necessarily, but men are involved. Um, and, and I think that his, like, his vision for it is, yeah, it's really radical. Like it's like he's coming from that anti-patriarchy viewpoint. So not the kind of what I see as a bit of a watered-down gender equality viewpoint. Like some of where we go, violence against women's sector can sort of really get very focused on like gender inequality is the foundation of violence. Um, and so to fix violence, you have to fix gender inequality. For me, that only gender inequality is a symptom of patriarchy. You have to come at patriarchy as a whole and particularly you have to come at what it does to boys and men and how it makes them 
or how it enculturates them to be extremely sensitive to rejection and to be extremely, um, to, to have deep shame around feeling vulnerable and emotional. So I, I'm like, unless you're doing that, if you're only looking at gender inequality, you're not looking at the whole picture. And Brad is totally looking at the whole picture, you know, um, and doing it in collaboration with women um, and the women who've been working in this sector for decades, rather than it being, I guess, more of a isolated organisation as, as, as it was you know, before. So I like, I'm cautious as always, because unfortunately, pro-feminist men's movements can attract people who are seeking cover, or not just seeking cover, but guys who are trying to reckon with their own violence and abuse by becoming involved in a public facing way to tackle it. It's not always just manipulative and strategic. I think sometimes guys who are struggling are drawn to that work. Um, because it's like, yeah, yeah, probably Freud had lots to say about that. But anyway, um, <laughs> but they are also dangerous in the movement because it's not that you only need men with spotless records, but if men are perpetrating violence at the same time as they're seeking to undo it, it obviously is 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 difficult <laughs> and a problem. Um, but yeah, but I think that white ribbon has come. It's just completely different to what it was before. Um, and it's really interesting to see how it's going to evolve and how it may be able to produce a nascent men's movement in Australia. That's what's missing, so badly missing. Really, you think that there's a real lack of a cohesive men's movement across there the is country? None. Right. There's no pro-feminist men's movement um, that is coherent and visible like, and I say that as someone who has been looking for it, um, even just to interview, <laughs> you know, like, and, and doing this long essay on Me Too, a big question that I had for it was like, so who, where, what's the male response? Where's the male response? Not that there's just one, <laughs> but who's leading that? And it's like, well, there are some academics who are quite vocal. There are some people who talk to boys' schools and stuff, but there's nothing cohesive. Do you, know Michael, the, do you know Dr. Michael Flood? Yeah, so Michael Flood is obviously one who's been doing this work for a long time, but it's all individuals. Yeah. Right. So, and this is the thing with with men's movements is well, the lack of men's movements <laughs> is that men are predominantly doing this from an from an individual position and they kind of go it alone. Um yeah, I guess I guess I'm one of them. Yeah, you're one of them, but it's not your fault. Like it's just that's that's the that's the mold is to go it alone and just try to tackle this through the force of your will. Um, women predominantly do this through collectivist movements. Mm. Um, and that's the, that's the power of the women's movement. When I say I'm one of them, uh, to clarify, I am also a white ribbon ambassador and I do do some contract work for our Ministry of Social Development who have mm -hmm. an anti-violence campaign called It's Not Okay, which is in the process of rebranding. So I work in alignment with other organizations, but most of my education work is, is just me. Yeah. You know, speaking in schools or speaking in businesses. Um, Same here. Like, I'm not a joiner. That's not, I, like, I'm a bit. You're, you're a punk I'm rocker. Bit... I feel like you're a punk rocker, right? Yeah. Like you, you're <laughs> You're out there kind of just like, yeah, fuck, I'm out here doing my thing. What's I up like now? <laughs> I've never yeah. been called a punk rocker before, but I'm totally going to take that um, <laughs> and, and own it. 
Is that fair though? Like, I feel like there's a, like, the system is fucked and I'm going to do my best to fix it energy that you have. Yeah, definitely. And I see the limitations of me not taking more of a collectivist approach. The fact is, as a journalist who has kind of strayed into campaigning is partly why. Um, And for you, like, as an educator, like, there are some things that kind of happen just individually right like this is you know of course like we can't do everything in groups but I've been contacted by so many people who are like so hungry for something to join I and I don't know where to point them to um a lot of the women's collectivist movements in Australia and I'd say I'd say in most countries there, there may be exceptions where there's like really strong feminist sort of collectivist movements that are about advocacy but they are mostly about responding to crisis. Like if you're getting into yeah, yeah. the sexual violence movement, it's like, yeah, saddle up. Like we need someone to respond to all these women who are coming through our door. Like an advocacy gets tacked onto that. So when the Me Too movement went viral in 2017, um, in Australia, there was no like real set up feminist collectivist movement that could step in and take the lead, you know? And so it ended up being sort of, led by someone who had no experience in collectivist organising, was a, you know, a former newsreader, and it ended up going very badly um, because it was sort of, you know, she was sort of recent to feminism and she maybe had good intentions to start with but just, you know, just did not have a, a pedigree in this area or, or connection to the grassroots. Um, whereas, you know, if something happened, like if Me Too was a climate movement, um, like me too, I'm also being, you know, burned by fossil fuels trapping get ha- eat, heat in the atmosphere. Um, <laughs> you would have, if that went exploded in the same way, you'd have all these groups that are ready to step into the breach and, and mobilise. And that, that the wind of that viral movement would like fill their sails and they'd be ready to go. Um, whereas that, we don't really have that. We just have collectivist crisis response movements that also do advocacy. Yeah, it's, um, the same, it's the same here. There's a there's a woman's refuge. There's shine, you know, places for to put a roof over a woman and her family, her children's head when they need to leave a violent situation. And as you say, advocacy advocacy is tacked tacked on to the end of that. Mm. But there's not like a front facing preventative approach to cultural change. Or mm. do, do, does that make sense? Yeah, and we've got we've got some here, like we've got our watch, which is a government funded body. Mm. And we have some things like that, but they have to de-radicalize in order to get funded. Um, and I'm not suggesting that when I say de-radicalize, I'm not saying that if you're a radical movement, you then have to hold radical positions like abolition or you know, all those sorts of what people think of as radical positions. What I mean is you have to um you have to fit into the narrative of the government of the day to maintain your support. Um, so you, whatever radical position you're taking, which is like a, ex, outside of the status quo or trying to challenge the status quo, is ameliorated by the funding arrangement. Um, and and it's very hard to have a group that you could really say this is a feminist movement, a collectivist feminist movement that represents a whole wide body of people because there are so many divisions within, you know, inside the so many schisms. <laughs> that, that is the fucking thing though, right? Like the left will eat itself is true here. Yeah. You know, like, and also I think in our space, can I say our space? Yeah. Um, 
a lot of us come with different histories, right? And we come with different traumas and some people have got further down the path of resolving their trauma and others yeah. haven't. And we look yeah. at the world very differently with different lenses and different histories, different mental health issues. And, and remembering can- also, we're not like going to, there's no end point in sight. So it's, like the climate yeah. movement has an end point in the sense, not, not necessarily. No, like but we're putting dates on it, right? Yeah. Yeah, but like it's like, you know, Zero, like stop fossil fuels that's its that's its goal primarily um and don't cut down trees and a whole bunch of other things um and there are schisms within that movement too but it's much less than a movement that is about achieving equality um and undoing or smashing or however you want to you know deal with patriarchy because there are so many ways to skin that cat and many of the skinners are like fighting each other before they're even getting to the cat. Yeah. Um, so, and I understand why, and I know why, and it's valid. Like it's, and, and it's part of actually what keeps in a weird way, it keeps it all alive, even though it's problematic in some ways, you need the stuff right out on the margins to keep everyone honest and to keep pulling everyone in various directions and keep everyone questioning rather than just getting settled into like a nice, comfortable framework yeah it's an there interesting no one framework yeah I've, I've felt this i've not i've i try and mm, look at where i've done wrong because i haven't always said the right thing necessarily uh but in my evolution of it i've noticed that i went from i suppose like many men do in this space get overly rewarded or acknowledged for being a man saying these things sure do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you, like, and you have to be mindful of that because it can go to your head and you can enjoy the applause, however, subconsciously. And I think I did that when I was younger. But then it, the more I did it, and then, and then obviously, uh, the more attention you get for it, then you start getting your knockers for saying exactly the same thing, even when you're saying it better now. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of go from being, part of the outside to moving towards the inside right yeah and then when you're here it's kind of like you know when like indie kids used to be like I don't like that band anymore because they're Mm. they're too popular I feel like that's part of the process like I know Matt and Sarah from Mm. She's Not Rehab they've been through that sure everyone has everyone they're, they're so big now and they have like such a following online and they've been really recognized for their work as they should be because it's amazing work but, you know, knowing them personally, they've had some horrific things said about them in the, yeah. in, and some horrific knocks um, that I think weaker people would, it would slow them down or make them stop. Yeah. How do we help people on the same team not try and shoot each other down? Mm. Yeah, it's pretty hard because, um, as you say, it's a both a trauma-informed and trauma-affected community. Yeah. Um, and that's what's different. It's not that people in the climate movement aren't trauma-affected. Of course they are. But but the subject is not um, continually triggering, you know, whatever kind of <laughs> trauma they have, you know. Um, and so there's no, okay, like there's no way to stop that from happening. Um, there's ways to talk about maybe there being some level of collective accountability when attacks are made unjustly um and i think that the interesting thing around all this talk about cancel culture and 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 public shaming i think john ronson had a 
said it better when he said like you know that that book he wrote so you've been publicly shamed Great book. rather than cancel culture because i think people get hung up on well that person's not cancelled they still have deals and they're, they're still being published or whatever so you know people get really hung up on that one point the point is the shaming um and what what nobody sees when someone quote unquote fucks up says something that's you know um not politic um according to the zeitgeist and the cultural moment um which can get misread can get misunderstood or can be something that does need to be held accountable right what most people see in the response to that are the people who are just trying to hold them accountable right they're just trying to say like hey what you just said there was a bit of a shitty thing um i don't agree with it and here's why and so people see that and they say well you're just being held to account there's nothing wrong with that what the individual sees is all of the stuff that then circulates around those very valid critiques, which is the pylon at the margins, which is can be extreme. I've been at it, the, I've been at the bottom of that. Like I've been quote unquote cancelled. Yeah, and, and um, it's very upsetting to even talk about it with you now. Like the sure. the mental health impacts of that. For me, like it ended with the person who started it being arrested because we have shit. That's... We have we have um, a harmful digital communications act in New Zealand. Mm. So if you are maliciously using the internet to make false accusations, to harass people, to um, cause them emotional harm, you can be held criminally liable, mm. and mm. you can face uh, incarceration or a huge fine. Mm. And that's what happened in my case, because but we live in this moment in time where you say something about someone, people don't stop to critically reflect on that. They're like, mm. where's this coming from? What's history of that? What's the truth of that? And then it will go off, particularly on a platform like Twitter, like you know how it is. And whether it's true or it's not, at least to that public shaming and that public communication. And I having gone through that experience it really shifted how I look at things now it it really made me pause and reflect on what have I been consuming or jumping on that may have a lot more to the to yeah the story exactly exactly what, and what, that's what, what 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 is this what what is not being said that's what is, there's always more to it and yeah. that's why I'd I've, I've really pulled back from my own posting about this sort of work, you know, like I really stop and reflect on, you know, every time I um, would see like, I don't know, someone was accused of a crime or blah, 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 blah. I'd really want to make sure I knew what I was talking about before I would share that. You know, I, I remember once um, well a, a quite famous cricket player here was accused of something and i wrote this like very inflammatory post i was like if you see this guy in the street like tell him i'm gonna punch him in the face or something you know like i was young and it became huge just before the, al the algorithm change on facebook like i like like a million people saw it or something it was ridiculous i would never do that now because yeah. a i don't think it's constructive and b i might be fucking wrong and, and yeah. And we and we do have due process for a reason, and 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 I and cancer culture has no due process. And you'll always see the headline: this person did bad things, did bad thing. You'll never see the retraction, right? You'll never see the 
the footnote oh like oh we kind of got it wrong or we missed this sort of part so i've yeah i've and become not, a critic of cancel culture yeah i guess that um what can happen especially on twitter and stuff is the uh chinese whispers so the original thing that was said or done um you know that may have had there's and often there is a grain of something in there that like it's important to just say something to someone about, you know, say, hey, you know how you said that? I, you know, I don't know about that. I think that, you know, um, maybe you got it a bit wrong there, right? Yeah. And sometimes it starts as mild as that. Um, but, but yeah, it's when it becomes that Chinese whispers effect and, and you get into where people are starting to call you a racist or call you a sexist, you know, um, in ways that are like utterly unmoored from the original comment that was pulled up on that's that's where and then and then you know people who are you know they, they taste blood in the water you know that's what the feeling is that you and, and yeah like I've I've experienced that myself um some of the criticism or the response was valid um some of it was just fucking outrageous and um and yeah, reputationally, I totally suffered as a result. Um, and not just reputationally, but but yeah, personally, the shame effect of it was so intense. Um, it's actually yeah, it's the first time I've ever felt even the the marginal edge of suicidal. Um, I, I, I like I really sorry, I really relate, and I'm I'm sorry you went through that. Like yeah, it's it's yeah. a it's a really horrible experience to want to kill yourself because because of what people are saying about you, which isn't true. I think um, Natalie Wynn, who is a, a YouTuber, really funny transgender YouTuber, Twitter, like huge following. She does this wonderful piece on cancel culture, and she says that there's this transmutation from they did a bad thing or they said a bad thing to they are a bad person. Yeah, that's there's right. A, there's a real essentialism that happens. And I think it does all a disservice to believe that because mm. we are not the sum total of our worst mistake. You know, yeah. like if I believe that, I wouldn't be in this work sometimes walking alongside men who have like fucking murdered people or raped people or been horrifically violent to children. Mm. You know, like if I don't believe in redemption and change and healing and hold empathy for people who have done terrible things, how can I truly do justice to trying to create a world where violence against women and children is a thing of the past, you know? And a lot of these same communities, like, you know, sometimes the people who will be around the fringes of it, will also will believe very wholeheartedly in redemption, in the fact that, you know, we shouldn't jail people, we should try to heal them, you know, those sort of bigger picture things. Um, but then in the moment be like, you know, vitriolic and um, and unduly shaming. And this is what, like, I have definitely become a better writer for being on Twitter, um, not because <laughs> Twitter is the be-all and end-all of, you know, of, if, of human um opinion um it certainly is uh, represents certain chunks of it but being held accountable watching other people be held accountable um the education around things like intersectionality i couldn't get anywhere else it's I'm, amazing i'm exactly the same i used to be a fucking dick 
Like, I, <laughs> like if, I, if I'm honest, when I was like 29 and graduating with a politics degree or whatever, and like had been doing and, you know, getting into advocacy, I was like self-righteous and painful. Mm. And it's good uh, to have a check in your and, mind. And, obs- and obsessed with like being right and winning. Like, Mm-mm. and now I'm 41 and I actually do all this work and I've been through this journey and I've been a dick on Twitter. Mm. I've been really defensive when people have like uh, justifiably challenged something I thought or said wrong, you know, and I would jump to defense, you know, and, and rather than, well, oh, what do you mean by that? Or can we explain that? Or how do sure. we talk about that? Or how do we it's get confronting. In- like yeah. being publicly exposed is confronting. Like, you know, as much as we say that's what needs to happen and whatever, like it's, it's full on when you are publicly exposed. And if you feel like there's been gaps in what you've said or, or, or you've just said something blatantly wrong or unfair, you feel that shame of, of having had that exposed. Um, and I guess, but, and then there are other times where you get verbaled, you know, and you didn't say anything like that and you've been situated um, yeah. as someone as, as a white guy or, you know, for me as a, like, as a white feminist, apparently, because I'm a white woman and also a feminist, you know, you can get really. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're disgraceful white feminism. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, don't really, I don't align myself to the precepts of white feminism at all, I don't think. Um, and I think that it's majorly problematic. But, you know, I get it. Like sometimes, sometimes it's not going to be rational. And so long as it's in, it's in small doses, I can kind of cope. When it becomes a snowball effect, um, yeah, it's um, it's incredibly distressing um, because when you try to speak back to the snowball, it's the the ones right on top who have said something quite valid, whatever. They don't see the rest of the snowball, and so you you get really agitated and edgy in your response, and they think that you're just responding to them, but you've been sort of pushed to the edge by people who are, you know, being quite irrational towards you. Yeah. And that's such a shame because I'm, I don't know that it happened to you. I don't know the story that you're referring to, but um, yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you, but also that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that we fight amongst ourselves and that really yeah. takes us away from like doing the actual work. Yeah. And also in, not in a way that is necessarily productive. Like I'm all for, if people have like, seen me say things or campaign for things or perpetuate things that they think that I'm not, uh, therefore I'm not listening to people. I'm all for having that conversation. Um, I guess what, what some people see as not listening is not agreeing. Like I've like literally spent months and months this year listening to every opposing viewpoint, reading it back to front, like going through it, questioning my own viewpoints, doubting myself, circling back, you know, and really going back to the basics, like have I even come from a sound place to begin with? And if I decide after all of that that I don't agree with the people who disagree with me, that's just a position, right? And that's okay. They can think that, you know, that I'm taking the wrong position and they can criticise me for that and whatever, but it's not because I didn't listen. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not, it's, listening doesn't mean you have to change your position entirely. It might just mean you ameliorate it somewhat or you take different things into account. And it doesn't make you a bad person. And it comes back to the essentialism. 
I feel yeah. like we're at this moment where everything's very binary and social media in particular flattens everyone into this 2D character caricature. I've struggled saying that word. Caricature, yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Based on like, you know, a limited understanding of who someone may be. Mm. And we're not allowed to, within a movement, hold two ideas at the same time. Yeah, the, that, it, a lot of ideological sort of... Um, not capture, but it can get quite narrow. Um, yeah, and what the okay prescribed position is and how to address something. When I would argue, as you said earlier, like there's lots of ways to like get to the root of the problem and your solution might not be my solution, but we're still looking towards a solution. Mm. And that's okay. Like your audience isn't my audience, isn't their audience. And, you know, I've said this before to other people like Coke and Pepsi and all these huge, terrible brands that sell us terrible things. You're very clever in getting the right spokesperson to target each individual strain of their market, yeah, right? Exactly. And we need to do the same when it comes to the, to this work, this scope of this field, right? Like we need to find heaps of different voices broadly aligned, saying similar things, but in different ways or yeah. even different things, but with the same outcome. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. And knowing that, like, not everyone's going to agree on the pathway towards it, you know. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've really struggled with and been confronted by is um, people who see a position that I take on coercive control that I think it should be criminalised or included as, as something that we respond to from the criminal justice system perspective because at the moment we just respond to incidents which actually, A, don't show the totality of abuse, but B, often mean that the, the, the victim is misidentified as a perpetrator because they've committed an assault or, you know, that it's all been taken out of context. Um, but because I advocate for a criminal justice response, which already exists for domestic and family violence, but I think in the wrong way, I kind of get pigeonholed as someone who just wants to send men to prison or who's, who really advocates for the prison system. And it's so clear to me, and I feel like I've explained it so many times, but, but still doesn't sort of come across that there's no, I have absolute, personally have no attachment to how accountability is enforced. Um, I have a very strong attachment to victim safety I have a very strong attachment to accountability because I think it's absolutely central to prevention um, and you have to have accountability or you have impunity. Um, but I am no advocate for the prison system. Um, I think it's a harmful system. I think if we can find it and make something different that would still create safety um, and that would even you know, rehabilitate people or, or help them to become better versions of themselves, um, that would be great. But I also deal firstly as a journalist, but also as someone who campaigns in this space with practicalities. And I don't think it's moral to wait for a utopian ideal and not commit to improving the system in the meantime. Yeah, I agree with you. I get frustrated with a lot of the anti-police rhetoric within progressive circles because, yeah, there are structural problems within our criminal justice system and there are you know people of color are disproportionately represented when it comes to incarceration and being arrested for you know non-violent drug crimes all that sort of thing but at the same time how do we hold you know like you know it is 
I grew up with domestic violence, right? And it was the police who came to my house and took my my dad away, you know? And I'm grateful to them for that, you know? Like, it wasn't some talking head on the internet who was making that then and there intervention. Mm-hmm. And now as an adult, um, it's still police doing the same thing. There's still police coming away and serving protection orders and removing men who are violent and doing all of that important then in their work. It's not a perfect system, but until that utopia that you're talking about is in place, we actually need to have criminal sanctions. And yeah, does that make sense? Like we yeah. actually we actually need to. Well, the fact is we're going to. Not like, just critique no. our police and criticise our police and tear our police down all the time for what they're doing wrong, but maybe also acknowledge that a lot of them are really good people doing the best they can with what they have. Yeah, well, I tried, like, you know, in, this, in the trap, like, did we did two episodes on police. We did a look at, like, perpetrators within the police system. Um, we also looked at police culture and what was pre- preventing it from being a reliable place of safety for people who are experiencing violence, you know, uh, which is, like, pretty much the function of police. Um, well, that's how... We'd like to think of the function as police, um, you know. Um, and so I am not in, you know, I don't have any illusions about police. And, in fact, it's partly why I look at alternatives like police stations for women and, like, how are other countries overcoming negative policing cultures that that prohibit that this type of safety um, where there's racism and sexism and misogyny, et cetera, um, I guess the thing is for me is that like we don't know there's no community buy-in or readiness for major shifts to the criminal justice system that would see even a reduction in policing. Um, and if there is and and part of what's fantastic about the abolition conversation is it starts to challenge like just the status quo, which is that you know, if you have someone do something bad, they get charged, maybe they get imprisoned, you know, like it's, it's bringing up different ways of dealing with that. Like, how would it look? Is restorative justice possible in an, in an intimate partnership? You know, all that. You know what I think it is? I think the abolitionist movement got a real shit slogan. Defund the police is not a good slogan. Yeah. Yeah. Because it makes Joe public think like, what, we're going to have no cops. Yeah. (laughs) When actually what you were saying is like, we need more social workers, we need fund the more community. health addiction, we need to fund, we need to fund. Yeah, exactly. Which is actually the flip side of defund the police, especially in the States and here too. Um, but, you know, the one place where they've really done that, which is, um, you know, in the city where George Floyd was killed, like they really took it to council. They did actually reduce funding for police. Um, a whole bunch of police actually quit, you know, for various reasons. Um and what they found was that in some of the most dangerous neighborhoods, like the crime rate went through the roof. I know. And that's because they're not ready. Like, yeah, and they actually had, you know, African American members of those communities suing the council to get more cops reinstated. So what what I, you know, I like I've I feel like it's very important to engage really deeply with all of these different ideas. And then it's important to look at like strategically okay so strategically how are you going to reach that outcome it's not i don't think through refusing to improve systems i don't think improving the system is the opposite of abolition um there's got you've got to create a pathway and absolutely i think rejecting just a straight carceral approach is important 
but the flip side of that is not removing it altogether with nothing there to fill it because we live in a patriarchal society. We call police and the courts patriarchal institutions, but outside of that is not like this utopia that if they weren't there, we just all get along and be non-patriarchal. Like we are patriarchal, you know, communities are shit often at responding to domestic and family violence. Sometimes there are great communities who really put their, you know, they put their nose to the grindstone and they develop ways to respond properly. But victim survivors will tell you that when they leave the relationship, they often have to leave their friends. They have to leave the, um, the community they live in because they get persecuted, right? So it's not like remove these authorities and the communities will take care of it. Bullshit they will, you know. Yeah. Are you familiar with the phrase luxury beliefs? Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, do you know that concept? It's, yeah. I, it's new to me, but I'm like, that's what it is. It's like, it's a luxury belief to set to like defund like a, a working class or economically socially marginalized neighborhood and, and like really cut down in there when you, it's not you who's going to be a victim of that crime that skyrockets. That's or even if like you're a community group who does a lot of work on that front and who gets in between police and, you know, gets in between child protection workers and actually really works to protect your community, um, then, yeah, I can understand why you want to have more power in that sense. But that might be true of your community. But it, it, next door in your neighbouring community, that might not exist. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and, yeah, we should have more of that that community response but we don't want to go back to the 1960s and 70s where women in the nascent domestic violence sector had to go with baseball bats to victims houses because if the perpetrator came home they were both at serious risk and try to somehow ferret the women and children out so that then this guy can just go on to meet another woman and child and ruin their lives as well like there has to be a power greater than the perpetrator there to hold them accountable in whatever way that looks like. There has to be also a way for all of that abuse to be visible to the justice systems that we have. And yeah, in lieu of there being an alternative that is A, ready to go, that has appeal to the community and is like, you know, actually possible politically, um, we have to kind of work with what we've got, hold it to account keep on demanding um, change and improvement. And that's what I've heard from some of the best um, women of colour advocates in the UK, for example, you know, who'd say to me, like, we don't have the luxury of, you know, saying luxury beliefs. We don't have the luxury of just saying fuck the system because the system will fuck us. Big time. It will. And I think people forget that. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think, I think people who aren't actually experiencing violence or any of the sorts of things that we're talking about, they actually forget what the tangible impact of some of their ideas can look like, or they don't conceptualize them. Is that? Even some people like, you know, some of the fiercest abolitionists have had some of the most fucked up, awful, violent relationships or come from really violent childhoods. Um, so it's not always, it's not always coming from like ivory towers or, you know, um, sure, okay. realities. But it is coming from subjective reality, which is like, okay, so this is my feeling of what I wanted in my situation. Sometimes it's coming from people who did have police engaged, but maybe wanted something different and didn't like the outcome of that. Um, So I like, I think it can be like coming from a really valid place, but I just think, yeah, like 
we have to think strategically. What what end point are we working towards? How do we get there? I think that's why I'm such a fan of your work. You know, there's a strategy to it rather than just like a emotional responsiveness to it. You know, yeah. Like well, you- that's what like I just last thing I'm sure I've like spent ages talking your ear off, but there's a um, a woman here, Nina Fennell, who's a um, survivor advocate for sexual um, assault victims has, you know, and, and is a survivor herself. And she started this incredible campaign called let her speak and also let us speak. And it was to overcome like primarily, but not only to overcome gag laws that would prohibit victims from speaking about their sexual assaults. Um, And it's, you know, one of the survivor advocates involved in that campaign became Australian of the year, Grace Tame. um, And, and that's been a big conversation here in Australia. And I was chatting to Nina the other day for this essay that I wrote um, and she was saying, explaining to me how the Let Her Speak campaign got such wide buy-in and was so effective. It changed like four laws um, and had huge community buy-in. And she said, because I ran it in a conservative newspaper, which is like News Corp papers around Australia, and I framed it as a freedom of speech issue. So she said, I didn't run it as a sexual violence issue, but when I ran it as a freedom of speech issue, every time someone would get their court orders, I would run these long articles about, um, you know, debunking myths on victim blaming, um, explaining grooming, whatever it was that that survivor wanted to explain to the community, that would then be a platform to do it with their free speech. Um, And that's how she got conservatives to pay attention to sexual violence. And I just think that is fucking genius. And like, I just want us to be more cunning (laughs) instead of going, eat your fucking vegetables. I don't, then just not going to, like, I have a four-year-old. If I try to shove broccoli in her mouth and she doesn't want it, she's going to let me know. And she's not going to eat it. Like, unless I put her on a drip and we can't put society on a drip. So we just need to be more savvy, even if it's not the perfect way that we would like to pitch it. Even if we think they should just accept what we're saying and change on the basis of it. Shoulds don't mean shit. Yeah. I always say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Hmm. I think Voltaire is someone far more mm, uh, articulate than I am. <laughs> but, but, but I believe that to be true. I think we often sacrifice pragmatism for idealism and that's to the detriment of the cause. Yeah. Just has been wonderful. I, I've I've taken far more of your time than I said I would. Um, I really truly want to say thank you for the work that you do and continue to do, and I imagine will continue to do. Um, and, and I really you hope too, that Ricky. you've done amazing. Like you know, your ability to connect with boys and men is incredible, um, and you know, it's rare. Well, I will endeavor to follow in your footsteps <laughs> and, I, and I hope that we can check in and swap notes and do tangible work together again in the future. Yeah, me too. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much. Enjoy Hi. your evening and um, yeah, we'll be in touch. Mm-hmm.